All right, Nick, though you've been woefully inadequate in reporting on uh, a piece of the story that's critical, I'm going to let you off and we'll move on. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll try and do better next time. Thanks. I appreciate it. I'm not going to tell you what a great story you did. <laughs> this is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the Marathon Oil Refinery was once hailed as a savior for a nation facing an oil crisis. But after a devastating fire there last month, some residents of the region are strengthening their resolve to combat continuing efforts to expand industry. And last week, a U.S. district judge tossed out a suit brought by the ACLU of Louisiana, which claimed three young black men's civil rights had been violated by security officers by pulling guns on them when they were searching for a lost dog in the Garden District of New Orleans. And a change in how the New Orleans Public School District posts notices of warnings makes it more difficult for parents to determine if their child's school has been cited for violating a wide range of educational requirements. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus and photojournalist LaChance Perry. Hi, Delaney. Hello. Hi, LaChance. Hi. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. And managing editor Katie Rechtal. Hi, Katie. Hey. Feels like a long time since we've all, all been together. I'm so happy to see you all. And there's a lot to talk about. Delaney and Lachance, you guys were at a huge fire at the Marathon Oil Refinery last month, which has strengthened the resolve of some of the region's residents who oppose proposed development and expansion of industry in their neighborhood. Let's first talk about the history of the refinery there, Delaney. Tell me what uh, Marathon Oil did and when and how that all started. Yeah, so the refinery was built in the mid-1970s. Um, it was opened in 1976, um, and it was seen as this um, capability of the South to kind of step up for the entire nation to provide um, energy for the rest of the country, to provide energy really for the Northeast, because the Northeast did not want to build these big refineries. Hmm. Um, and it's very interesting just because it is the last meaningful refinery that's been built. Um, and that's a little misleading because since then, all of these refineries have been largely expanded, but it's really difficult to get um, permissions to have a new one be built from scratch because communities just are so against it. So instead of building new ones, they're just taking existing ones and multiplying their output, their footprint, everything. Yes, and they're they're continuing to do that. There are more plans even this year to expand existing refineries across okay. Louisiana. So late last month, there was a just a massive fire that occurred at the Marathon Oil Refinery. Can you tell us what they know about the blaze? And I'm really interested in how you wrote about what the lengths they went to to combat it and what the repercussions of that are as well. Yeah, so the fire started uh, just before 7 p.m. on a Thursday evening, um, August 24th. And it wasn't clear to the community that, that there was a fire until the next morning when the smoke was just so visible, you could see it practically from New Orleans. Um, but it, they had called the Louisiana State Police. There is a record that the fire had started and that Marathon 
informed um, law enforcement, but just didn't inform the surrounding community for many, many hours. Um, and it proceeded from a suspected pinhole leak in one of these giant naphtha um, storage containers. And naphtha is this very flammable um, byproduct that's gleaned from the process of refining uh, oil. And it's just, it really, it went up in flames and it, it was just so, it was really big and it lasted for more than 24 hours. So what were the efforts that they undertook to, to get this thing under control? And more importantly, let's talk about what the environmental consequences are of just the fire alone. Yeah, so firefighters uh, used this chemical foam to try and smother the blaze so that it wouldn't continue to spread um, and take out other storage tanks that are sitting among <laughs> that right. space in the refinery. Um, and that chemical foam is is toxic in itself. It's really efficient at putting out fires, but once it mixes in with the water that's also being used to try to extinguish the flames, it creates this kind of toxic wastewater um, that they just leave, that has to stay in these fire ponds, fire water ponds, um, because they can't clean it. It can't, they can't just put it into the river. That would be terrible for the environment. Um, and we know that they have brought in special equipment in order to clean that water and the treated water will eventually go into the river. And we have been tracking down documents, trying to figure out what was released into the air from this fire and right. what, um, how Marathon documented those gases that might affect the community. And we have to take them at their word that all of that contaminated foam water, none of it leached or went anywhere, that it's perfectly contained until they then clean it up? Yes, we don't have access to any other sources. Okay. So before the fire, um, just let's talk about what, what happens at that refinery as far as um, pollutants that are that are emitted and and what the company itself reports that is emitted and how that squares or not with what other independent agencies have found the only pollutant that is required to for the, the data to be released to the public for that specific refinery in Garyville is benzene um, it's monitored every two weeks instead of continuously and that information does not become public for some time. Um, when I was trying to find that data, I could only find benzene data up until the end of 2022. Um, in contrast, the Marathon Los Angeles refinery continuously monitors 17 pollutants as well as benzene because they are required by law to do so. Um, and so Garyville, Louisiana does not have those requirements. And so Marathon does not make that information public. So the EPA has has no authority over what gets reported from these major refineries? It is state dependent. Hmm. Okay. So I think the interesting thing that when we were on the ground interviewing and working with people and um, the residents of that community, 
there was almost like a tug of war. Like half the people were oblivious in a sense, not even oblivious. Um, I don't think that would be the right word to say, but there was a sense of they were used to it. You know, this is something that they were very familiar with that happens in their community quite often. So for them, it's just a way of life. But then you have the other side and there's other people who understand that this has impacts, long lasting impacts. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think fatigued would be the word like mm -hmm. this happens so often that people in the community, this is no longer kind of breaking news issue. It's not a new thing. They know that these chemicals are always here and the fire, it's, it's a little, it's scarier than the average chemicals that are in the air, but still, still kind of status quo. Yeah, I would agree with Delaney. I think that the thing about this fire specifically with Marathon was the magnitude of it. The fact that it was so visible, the fact that you could see it from New Orleans. Um, you couldn't ignore it. It was something that people can't ignore. You can't run from these flames as they're going in the air, as you're seeing the smoke rise and it's changing colors as it's rising. You can clearly see that it's mixing with some sort of chemical. So all of these things are very present for people to just look, which is a lot different for a lot of community members who don't, you know, who aren't, well, for people who don't live in that community, not being able to see something like that on a daily basis is what gave this its shock value. But uh, um, most community members, most residents, this is a way of life. This is just something that happens and you either deal with it or you go away and you don't. And I think that was the interesting thing that I kept hearing a lot was, I mean, it's going to happen somewhere. Every place has its own set of issues. So it's kind of like pick your issue. Right. Some of the residents I, I would presume are employed by that refinery. That's the interesting thing. Um, a lot of the people, a lot of the residents specifically um, in the area that we were at. So we were in Wallace, which, well, that's where I was when I was taking photos. I was in Wallace, which is actually across from Garyville, across from Marathon um, on the other side of the river. So that was the interesting thing. When I talked to a lot of the people, uh, a lot of the workers don't live in that area. A lot of the workers mm. travel to work in these chemical plants. So a lot of the residents aren't really employed. Um, and then I think that's the other interesting thing for Wallace specifically is when I was out there talking to the residents, I learned that a lot of the people in that area are actually older and retired. So when you think about um, these chemical plants and a lot of the promise of the jobs, and then you actually look at the people in the area a lot of them are past their working age or past their age to work. So it's like a lot of the people in that area aren't actually being hired by the chemical plants. Mm. The photos that you took, Lachance, are the fury of the fire is captured in, in that one photo. I encourage everyone to, to look at the website if they haven't yet at the lensnola.org to see the photographs that you took. There's one thing I wanted to note Delaney in the story that you you write that a billion dollars of the funding for the refinery um, construction or the expansion came from Katrina money from from government relief for Katrina. Yes, so um, that the specific expansion of this refinery in Garyville happened in two thousand nine. It doubled its capacity. It now is a 596,000 barrel per day 
site. Um, and that expansion cost $3.9 billion and more than a quarter of that budget came from the Gulf Opportunity Zone bonds, which were meant to help Louisiana recover after Hurricane Katrina. Wow, that's fascinating. You were you were covering a different story when this fire happened. Tell us about that. We were sitting in the courtroom about hearing a case about a parcel of land that has been rezoned from agricultural to industrial and back to agricultural. Um, and it's a parcel of land that is currently owned by Greenfield, Louisiana. Um, they want to build a huge industrial grain processing center there with 54 grain silos, a dock, a conveyor belt. But so this grain terminal would like, would really destroy this kind of untouched section of the river, this, this West Bank, the last remnants of the German coast of this area. And so the Banner Sisters have been working for the past few years to ensure that this grain facility isn't built. Um, and one of the ways that they are doing so is by finding, well, they, they went to court to find that the zoning ordinance that changed this land to industrial usage in 1990 is null and void. Formosa wanted to build a rayon pulp factory on that land, and that's why it was originally zoned, why it became industrial zoning in 1990. That factory was never built, but now Greenfield has come in. They want to build this giant grain terminal. Um, but a judge ruled on August 4th that the ordinance from 1990 is null and void. Uh, it was done in a corrupt way. And the parish has since tried to re-establish re that zoning. They want the industrial zoning to come back so that they can build this big grading terminal and bring in industry onto the West Bank of the Mississippi River. And the citizens who live around that parcel of land adamantly do not want that to happen. Right, for, for health reasons, but also the Banner Sisters, I think, have identified that it, it's potentially a site of a former slave burial ground and, uh, you know, has historic significance for, for many. It, that specific parcel of land used to belong to the Whitney Plantation. Okay, all right. Tell us about the Banner Sisters and, and their state of mind right now. So I got the opportunity to meet with them afterwards. So they had kind of like a debrief session at their home after the hearing where they invited all the people, just everybody that's been involved in this uh, fight against for uh, the Wallace Grain Terminal with them. So they just came over. Everybody came over. They had food. It was um it, it was like a fellowship in a way, you know, mm. it was a community. It was almost a family in a sense, but at the same, it was a victory. So that's what they were talking about, the victory, the fact that they fought this, they've been preparing for this court case for so long. They finally um, were able to have something go in their favor. You know, the judge ultimately ruled in their favor. They were so excited, but at the same time, literally across the river, there's a chemical plant that's on fire and you know when I was talking to them it to me they just said it really proved their point it really proved the point of why they're doing this work it really proved the point of why it's so important 
that something like that doesn't happen on this side of the river. It, it just, for them, it really solidified the fact of why this work was necessary, why they didn't want something like that to happen in their own backyard. And it was, um, it was just so interesting to see that dynamic of still having to live life and still having to operate and, and, you know, just live despite the fact that you have health that's possibly being affected. Hmm. You know, there were schools that were closing. It was just so much that was going on that this chemical life disturbed, but yet the people there still have to figure out a way to continue to live and to continue to survive and ultimately navigate life. So I think that it was very interesting um, but it also, once again, instilled that sense of community, why it's so important to have people around you that's believing in the same thing that you're believing in, because I think that they really needed to just take that moment in and just sit with what they, the victory that they have for just that small moment, despite the fact that there is literally a fire burning ultimately next door. Right. The story is so well reported, it, that whole history of that plant and what it meant at the time and how you frame it to what's happened now and the portraits of the Banner sisters, the kids whose school has clo have closed from the fire and the fire itself. Bravo, you two. Thank you so much for your work, environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus and photojournalist LaChance Perry. Really great work. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guest this week, environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus and photojournalist LaChance Perry, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, education reporter Marta Jusen, and managing editor Katie Rechtal. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. We have a diverse set of financial supporters, including major national foundations, local foundations, and dedicated readers in the New Orleans area. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Nick? We have some resolution to one of the stories that we've been talking about for a long time now. Um, we've been reporting, you've been reporting on it for a couple of years. It started with three young black men searching for a lost dog in the Garden District in the summer of 2020. Remind us what happened then. Yeah, so like you said, there were there were three young men. Um, they're 18, 21, and then a 12-year-old um, boy as well. And they were out searching for a lost dog. Um, the dog, a chihuahua named Duchess, had run away and apparently had a medical condition that uh, required her to be uh, found found quickly. Um, so these boys were out. It was relatively late at night. Um, and they saw a security officer, a police officer, um, and it was an, an Orleans Levy District police officer, they didn't know at the time, but this officer was working the security detail for one of these neighborhood security districts. And they stopped and told the officer, hey, we're looking for this lost dog. If you see it, uh, will you, you know, let us know? And I believe that one of the boys claims he, he gave the officer um, an address or, or a phone number. And so the boys went off to continue searching for this lost dog. The officer, rather than 
believing what these boys told them, thought that it was very suspicious that they stopped and asked him for help. Um, and he ran the license plate on the car, which was registered to a New Orleans East address, um, which was, you know, far away from, from the uptown neighborhood that they were in. He thought that was suspicious. And so he called for backup and called another security district officer who tracked the car down and they, they followed it. Um, and then they eventually pulled them over and, and the boys didn't stop right away. And they, they claimed it was because, you know, they had just asked this police officer for help. They assumed that, you know, they were, they were coming to, to kind of check back in or help, help them out more. But rather than that, they, they pulled these boys over. Um, and the boys claimed that both officers also uh, unholstered their weapons and told the driver to, to get out of the car the officers claimed that they did not pull their weapons, but uh, admit that they pulled up, pulled the car over and, and told them to get out. They eventually ran or, you know, checked the driver's license and ran the driver's license of the driver of the car who whose mother owned the car and realized that it matched up to the to the address that was in New Orleans East. And, and they let the boys go. But kind of the broader context of this, this is in, in June of uh, 2020. This is, you know, right during the George Floyd uprisings. Yep. There's some some real heightened tensions at the time, and you know, you can imagine these these three young men and and to have uh, guns allegedly pulled on them um, were really shaken up. And and you know, even before this lawsuit was filed, uh, Bilal Hankins, who is the plaintiff, um, and his mother went before the city council um, and and sort of explained what the the situation that had happened and the concerns that they had and also their concerns, uh, the difficulty of finding out any information about these security district officers who had pulled them over because they weren't working for sort of their official uh, police agencies. Um, so that was a, that's kind of the general background of, of the story and, and the lawsuit that was filed by the ACLU of Louisiana alleged that that these boys were um, unreasonably stopped and, and subjected to, to excessive force by these officers, and then they also made some some uh, legal claims uh, related to the supervision and hiring practices of the, of these agencies. Right. Okay. And so the ACLU took this to to district court, and and the judge found that these were reasonable move moves by these security officers, and threw threw it out of threw it out of court. That's exactly right. Um, so, like I said, there was some dispute about whether or not the officers pulled guns. Um, they claimed that they did not. The boys claimed that they did. But what the judge found was that basically, even if the officers had pulled their weapons, that that was reasonable, um, that, you know, their concerns about it being late at night, about these boys, uh, that about prior crime being reported in the area. Mm. Um, they said that the boys were, were hanging out the window of the car, which is a bit disputed, but also, you know, could be understandable if they were searching for a dog, for instance. Um, but the, the officers claimed that it was consistent with with uh, people who might be pulling down door handles to to check and see if, um, you know, cars were unlocked. So the judge found that all of that warranted or at least uh, combined to make it so that drawing of a weapon was, was not, in his view, unconstitutional. Um, and, you know, he made a similar ruling with relation to the stop um, that that there was enough reasonable suspicion based on the car being registered to a, a New Orleans East address 
but you know the ACLU of Louisiana attorney basically said those things are all dog whistles. Um, you know, mm. basically it's clear that he saw three young black men in this nice neighborhood and decided to pull them over and they drew their weapons and kind of all of this other justification is not really, there's no real substance there. And if these were white kids, that would have ever happened. Is there any recourse for these kids now, or this is just, that's that they, they lost their battle. They, they can appeal the ruling. And I think they're kind of deciding whether or not they're going to do that right now. Okay. The last time we talked about this story, I asked you a difficult question. You did not have the answer. I'm realizing now that I still don't have the answer. No, Nick. And I, I know it's true. It's a real abdication of responsibility. Next week, I'm going to find out. And next week I will come back and, and give you an update on Duchess. We need to know. I don't mean to Bigfoot you, dude, but like I did when I talked to Lona, I was asking her if we could photograph the dog. And she said that they'd move. And so the dog is still around, but they just said, that's all. She's all, she's all right. Apparently she just moved. That's all. Okay. She, the guard district wasn't good for her after she fled or something. huh? I don't know. <laughs> hey, you know, um, I have to say as a mom, it becomes really clear to me when you run into people who are suspicious of young black men, that often it has to do a lot with not knowing your community that you're patrolling. If you are somebody who knows kids and you patrol a community that has black kids in it, you, you would know running into those children that these are children just looking for a dog. You would be able to get, you're supposed to, as an officer, have good instincts, right? My argument on this whole thing is that this, the judge might be tone deaf, but he's also supporting cops whose basic problem is that their instincts were bad. Uh, that's what gets me about this whole thing. How can you look at th that group of kids and say, oh, these guys are about ready to pull on door handles? No, that's not the group of kids you're looking at. So stop, hone your instincts, be better. That's what I'd have to say. Be better about understanding who you're patrolling, what community you're patrolling. That's stupid. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe a pertinent point is that one of the officers had been previously fired from the, from NOPD. Um, and, you know, here he is, again, patrolling the same jurisdiction through one of these security districts um, where, you know, he basically has the same amount of authority and he's getting paid by by a private neighborhood. Um, and, you know, I think that that's one of the main arguments that ACLU is making was we, we shouldn't be able to have these loopholes where an officer has been fired and, and now is back, you know, on the same streets um, with, you know, much less oversight. I just want to also add, I think it's about the stereotypes as well that's just so ingrained in our society that we honestly can't avoid them. The fact that the first instinct would to be to look at these boys, see them and automatically assume that they were doing something criminal or assume that they were involved in criminal activity, that's racism. That's inherently racism. Um, and it's just blatant. There was nothing that gave an inkling. Um, they came to the officer seeking help. So I think that that to me is what sticks out more is how this conversation of how racism is ingrained in our society into these dif different systems. It's still present and it's still relevant. And that story is just another example of that. 
That's a good point. Okay, thanks, Nick. Marta, tell me what you've seen when you've been looking at the website of the New Orleans Public School District regarding schools and their uh, report cards that they receive from NOPSD. Yes, they have a section of their website devoted to their most serious warnings that they're issuing to schools. I think this is a huge um this is a huge deal. It's a big issue for parents and for the community to be able to transparently see these types of warnings that are issued to schools. I think if you're the neighbor of a school or if you send your kid to a school, you deserve to know what's going on in that school. And so I'm always, I'm, I'm constantly paying attention to this specific web page, probably more than anybody else potentially. But I, I do think it's really important for transparency as far as what's happening in, in the schools. This is where they post warnings that have to do um, with anything from like, you know, serious security violations to special education uh, service violations to when we had almost an entire class of kids um, who were ineligible to graduate because of adults' decisions. Right. So that's, you know, that's where those warnings are being posted for the public to see them. And what I noticed is that over the last year, it appeared as if there had been no new warnings posted. So, you know, my questions there were, were there no new warnings being issued, which is one thing, or were they just not being posted? And was this a change under this new administration that they weren't posting the policy or the warnings in the same way they used to? So we got down to it and we talked to the administration. Um, and what they're telling us is that they, that there was no, you know, actual kind of written change in policy or practice. Um and that they do still post these serious warnings, but that they remove them once they are resolved. And that is, you know, that is a change from the past. Warnings may have been deleted in the past, but they certainly weren't deleted swiftly. In this case, we've seen, you know, like within 24 hours, or they weren't deleted or they, they weren't, you know, never posted. That was one incident we ran into here, which we came into question and, you know, we, we got down to talking with them the other day and, it turns out they hadn't posted this one warning ever. And so, you know, we asked essentially like, well, is this, is that your new, either that was an error on your part or that's your new part of your new practice, right? And then we just want to understand what you guys are, what's happening down there. They did end up telling us that that was a clerical error. So, you know, that's totally fine. We just need to understand what we're working with here. So the change, it's interesting to me that, that you've noted a change, but they're not copying to a change. Essentially, I mean, you know, there's only one year of data we have here. So it, it, it's, you know, they're also kind of leaning on, um, they're saying that because grades weren't released for a certain number of years, that there are some old things that remained on the website and they're trying to figure out a way to work through them and that that might be confusing to the public or to me. But, you know, it's, it's I think we did notice a shift in, of some sort. Meanwhile, Dr. Williams and her administration are committing to transparency. So, you know, we've we've asked them essentially whether or not they would, you know, continue to be posting these warnings on the site and or whether they would consider leaving them on the site. Um, mm. Now, they wouldn't commit to leaving them on the site. Um, it sounds like they don't want to kind of hang out everyone's dirty laundry to air forever. So, yeah, you know, almost take responsibility for that. But almost like they expunge their records after a certain amount of time goes by, they just wipe the slate clean. But how how does that help a parent who who wants to look at a school's, you know, five year record of of performance? 
Well, so Katie and I, I think, had a really productive conversation with uh, school leaders this week. And one thing we found out is that there is a way of tracking some of these complaints um, that doesn't necessarily materialize or rise to the level of something that's going to end up on the website. But that is something that we at the Lens can look at and um, likely break down and share for parents in a more constructive way. So that's something Katie and I have yet to talk about it, but I'm excited to explore ways that we can um, make that information helpful for parents. We don't know exactly why MARTA observes such a change. It might be a clerk, a website person. It might. It seems like it wasn't deliberate. That's at least the superintendent said that, and I believe that it wasn't. I think she was very adamant about that she's trying to be transparent and that she would not um, try to hide level two warnings. So I'm going to take her at her word. And I think we did have a productive conversation about that. Um, they're just, it just, something had changed. Marta noticed it because she's the one that notices that all the time. And so we got some good answers about what the possibilities were, why that had changed and why they had maybe, why those notices had stayed on the website before when they shouldn't have maybe. That was the other um, explanation that we were given. Mm -hmm. So we're working on it. I think, I think it's, I think the story in the end, we, ha we issued a clarification today to make that some of that stuff clear. And um, I think that we, like Marta said, we're looking at ways in which we can actually narrow down those notices and, and keep them in the public eye as you know as long as they need to be you know yeah as a service it's a great service for for the community great story thanks marta thank you thank you guys it's really nice to see you all you too okay you too bye right, see you guys we're really great today this is behind the lens a podcast from the lens new orleans first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom i'm carolyn heldman Thanks to our guests this week, environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus and photojournalist LaChance Perry, criminal justice reporter Nick Crestel, education reporter Marta Jusen, and managing editor Katie Rechtal. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>